Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. We have a really special show. Uh, we have a wonderful interview with Krista Bilton. If that last name sounds familiar, it's because she is our beloved Nick Bilton's wife, and she is an author of an incredible new book out this week called Normal Family. But first, I am here with my co-host, Joe Hagan, and we are joined by our co-worker, Vanity Fair correspondent, Eric Lutz, to discuss the latest with the January 6th committee and everything else happening in Washington. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Eric? You are our resident uh, man on the scene, on the beat. And, uh, you know, I was watching it yesterday, like everybody else. And I got to say that the big question for me that's been hanging really over the hearings the whole time was, will this committee be able to connect what we saw on that day to Donald Trump, right? Because everybody wants to know, can we prosecute this, fill in your favorite epithet. Do you feel like this committee has finally sufficiently made that connection? I think they're making a very strong case that above all else, what looked like chaos and just, you know, is, is John Bolton characterized it on CNN yesterday, Trump rambling about in search of any way to cling to power. Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing throughout these hearings is that none of it was spontaneous. Much of it was, yes, chaotic and you know, Trump is not exactly bright, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't planned. It doesn't mean that it wasn't orchestrated. It doesn't mean that there wasn't order behind all of what he was doing. And I think when you look at what happened on January 6th itself and the violence that, that occurred at the Capitol, even the ad-libbed parts of, of Trump's speech that day, the the extremists had advanced knowledge of that. So it, it, appears as though there is a lot of structure imposed on the chaos or at least running underneath all that chaos. Yeah, I think I think what's so interesting to me is I do think Donald Trump is bright and I do think that he understands the power of his words. That doesn't mean I think that every thing he says has been carefully considered or thought about, but I think he generally understands what works with the people who follow him and he speaks like in that world. And so I think that uh, from everything I know from my reporting of people who are around President Trump for a long time, 
things just fly out of his mouth, but he's within, he, maybe it's uh, the wrong house on the right street. And I think that that's what we're starting to see a little bit here, that maybe not every single thing was premeditated, but that the general sentiment uh, was something that he, he knew would work with a specific group of people who really followed him and had, had intent on that day. Does that, does that jive with what you're hearing? Yeah, well, and, and I think when you think about, again, to go back to what Bolton was was talking about on CNN, where he says Trump could not have been planning a coup because I've planned coups and I know all how much work goes into it, which is an amazing thing to say. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, that that speaks to this impression of Donald Trump, that he operates purely on instinct and is going from one thing to the next and, and, and there's no there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just acting on pure survival. That is obviously true to some extent. He is very impulsive, I think. But I think that that doesn't negate the strategy. I don't think it negates the idea that he knows exactly what he's doing. And I think, you know, I don't think anyone would say that accidentally starting an insurrection is any less a crime than than purposely starting one. But I do think that when he's framed as someone who's operating purely on instinct or doesn't really know what he's doing, that there's this idea that other people are responsible. And I think that's something Liz Cheney even got at in her opening remarks, talking about he's not an impressionable child. He's a 76-year-old man. This isn't him being led astray by grifters or, or bad actors or whatever. He is the bad actor himself. Yeah. Well, I think to your point about did he plan or didn't he plan, I think one of the pieces of evidence that he did was that when he knew and everybody knew that the election was lost mid-December, he began to adopt an entire different team of actors to fulfill his desire to have the election go a different way, right? He brings in a whole new team of basically anti-reality people <laughs> to try to execute a totally different plan that was extra legal, to, to put it uh, mildly. You know, this is, these are the Eastmans and the pillow peep guy and, you know, all these basically ghouls and freaks he brings in, uh, you know, who, that's why Cipollone, I felt like Pat Cipollone, the lawyer, White House counsel who was there, you know, we were seeing some of his testimony was interesting because he's sort of like a, you know, the last stand of sanity inside the White House, and he's describing the pivot that Trump makes consciously. You can say it's his gut or whatever, but he's not a child. He is a man <laughs> who is very bright and has managed to get this far in life that we can trust that he's not just some, you know, that he's being manipulated, right? He is allowing these other people to come in so that he can get what he wants. And what he wanted was to overturn the election. Yeah. And I think that's clear, not only in Tuesday's hearing, but also in, in the six hearings that came before it. Um, everything that seemed to be the, the rambling gut instinct, um, whether it was pressuring Mike Pence, whether it was calling local election officials, all that seemed very desperate. And it was, but it all also had this connection to the fraudulent electors scheme, you know, and, and I think the chaos on January 6th itself, again, we see these ad-libbed parts of his speech where he's calling on people to go to the Capitol and march and, and all the, and fight for him. That is wh whether it was gut or not, people knew what that meant. And, and there's the structure in place to make that happen. You know, it's fascinating to me and Joe, you, you 
started us off by talking about um, about this, but I've been thinking about it a lot over the last couple of days. We've seen poll numbers now that show that for the first time, the appetite for President Trump has really changed and the landscape of a possible second round of President Trump going forward seems less and less likely if you believe the polls. And I'm always skeptical of polls now at this point in our in our understanding. But I was talking to someone who is or was in Trump world for a really long time yesterday. And this is a very smart person who knows a thing or two. And this person said, uh, my only thought is that this is a January 6th committee actually sticking for the first time because people were sick of the Trump show or they weren't sick of the Trump show for many, many years. You were sort of entrenched and you either loved him or you hated him. But the difference is this committee. And I thought, wow, like this is democracy actually functioning the way it's supposed to function. And I had given up all hope on democracy actually being able to do that of Washington being at all effective in any way, shape or form. But I think we are possibly seeing that play out. And uh, it was just fascinating to me, Eric. I'm curious your take on that. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm mostly an optimist. So I like to think that this is getting through and it, 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 is, it does feel different. I'm very aware that there have been plenty of times over the last six, seven years where we thought this time felt different and it, it turned out not to be. So I, I hold some reservation there. That said, I think the difference here is that Trump is not currently in power. And so I, I think that there's less of an appetite, perhaps, when you hear some of these bombshell res- revelations, not only about how anti-democratic he is, but just the lunging at the the alleged lunging at the steering wheel and in the attack on a Secret Service agent. Like that stuff, I think, really reduces the amount of appetite that that anyone would have to go through those headaches anymore. If you're a Republican, I can't imagine wanting to have to answer for tweets or truth social posts or whatever it may be for the next four years. That said, I think part of the the decline in, in appetite for Trump could be because the movement that he started has already grown up to the point where he's perhaps no longer as necessary to it. And I think that that's probably the, the more pessimistic take is that you don't need Donald Trump if you have Doug Mastriano and if you have Ron DeSantis and you have all these other figures who have taken up what he's what he was doing clumsily and doing it a little bit more with finesse. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. I have a, another sort of take here as well that it has to do with the political appetite. What Trump established in the world is that you could be an entertainer president. He's an attention, he was an attention president. Right? He grabbed all the attention. He sucked it into the black hole of his narcissistic ego. And that was for four years of our lives, culminating in this bloody attempted coup. And, you know, the cycle in, in Hollywood terms, the cycle is the event happens. And then afterwards, somebody makes a limited series about it that takes you behind the scenes and tells you what really happened. And then you don't want to hear about it again. And what the genius of this committee is, uh, there are a couple of different aspects of it I find so fascinating. It's, it's incredibly just, you know, in raw entertainment terms, it's sucking all the life out of Trump, right? It's like after I've seen this January 6th hearing, and it will culminate next week in primetime, uh, where they tie it all together, and of course everybody is going to be watching it, I think that's it. That's the capstone on the Trump story. Nobody wants any more of the Trump story. We, that's it. That's as much Trump story as I think anybody is going to want to hear from again. And so out of that, I want to ask you guys both, let's talk about Liz Cheney for a minute. Because one of the things about this hearing that I think has been very effective is that while the committee members have shown a little bit of personality, they haven't turned it into a thing about themselves. They've been really cool, and especially Liz Cheney. You know, that foreigner song comes into my head whenever I see her. She's as cold as ice. She's willing to sacrifice our love. She is doesn't give a shit about the Republican Party because they hate her anyway. You know, she's not a Democrat. And so she really is out on out on her own. She's her own thing, and she is uh, just coolly committed to filleting Donald Trump down to hit the molecular level. And it's working, and it's making her into something. So what do you guys think of her? I, I agree. I think she's been fantastic in these hearings. I think she's been a highlight of it. I think, again, we're not talking about a moderate Republican. We're talking about a very, very conservative Republican, someone with whom I would personally disagree with just about everything, but within the normal bounds of political disagreement. And I think that the way that she has presented the evidence against Donald Trump has been one of the most compelling parts of the hearing. And I think not just her opening statement on Tuesday, talking about how he's a 76 year old man, really directly pointing the finger at Trump, but this is the second week in a row where she has ended the hearing with a bombshell about potential witness tampering. After Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, she talked about an anonymous Trump world figure sending threatening messages. On Tuesday, Trump himself, she accused of, of, trying to call a witness and saying that the committee had referred it to the DOJ. So she is presenting a very compelling case. She's presenting some of the most interesting and, and potentially damning information about Donald Trump. And I think she's been one of the clearest in calling for, in, in basically presenting this as a roadmap to prosecute. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. I I think that a lot of Democrats are feeling like what is the phrase? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so even if you don't feel like you can agree with Liz Cheney on basically anything other than these hearings, these hearings are very effective at 
sort of really nailing Donald Trump in a way that no one has really been able to nail him. I think she's exceptional at making a congressional hearing must-see television, which I don't think those two things have ever been in the same sentence before. And I think as a lawyer, she's doing an incredible job at making this case and presenting the evidence in a way that is both compelling and easy to follow, which again are two things that are not always simple to put in the same sentence. So I think this has been an incredibly incisive job that she has done. And I am—I really feel like I'm on the edge of my seat for what comes next. So Eric, my question to you is what does come next? Where does this go from here? What do we see playing out in the remainder of this time? And then how, how long until the committee is done? And then once the committee is done, what happens? So we know that the what is expected to be the last hearing is going to be next week. At the same time, we do keep hearing more about new witnesses coming forward in light of the, the more recent testimony. So I, I think, Joe, to your point, to some extent, yes, this is a cap on the Donald Trump story, but it does seem like the committee also keeps finding more and more information that you know we think we know Donald Trump because we've seen him way too much in not just in his political life, but also as an entertainer, as a businessman. We know every detail about this man, but then we learn more in these hearings. So I do think that it's something that they're going to continue to to produce more on. And I think, again, this is setting the stage for the Department of Justice to do something. And Merrick Garland has been cagey, to some extent, understandably, about where this is going with the Department of Justice. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to act in some way. I don't think he should act just because he's feeling pressure. And I think that, you know, deliberation and measure are important in, especially in a fraught political case like this. But I do think that as these hearings wrap up next week, I think that pressure is only going to increase given what we've learned out of these hearings so far. Yeah. Well, let me just say that, you know, they, they've made a lot of forward-looking comments and Jamie Raskin was really eloquent about this, a Democrat from Maryland. A lot of this is trying to tell the public, hey, January 6th happened, but it could happen again. You know, we are at the brink of something and we need to remember what this democracy about is about. A lot of this is not so secretly talking about the midterms. You know, it is foreshadowing uh, the fact that this country could go one way or the other, Right. And that sense of fear, that sense of danger is part of what the Democrats are going to have to be talking about this fall in addition to the economy. And it's about, you know, and you put Roe v. Wade in the fall of Roe v. Wade right into that. Women's rights, they go together. And, you know, ironically, I think that the success of the Democrats is something that will work long term for Liz Cheney's political fortunes in the future. You know, if, if indeed, as people speculate, she might want to run for president in the future, she needs the Democrats to win and to be in power so that the Republicans are chastened and look for other answers to their problems, right? So I know I'm extrapolating and get on ahead of the thing, of the thing, but I think this is the internal logic politically of what the January 6th hearings are about, in addition to prosecuting Trump, which, as people know who listen to this podcast, I think has to happen. I think it has to happen. Has to happen. I'm going to yeah. say it again. And, and, <laughs> and I, I agree. I think it is about more than Trump. And I think that that's been one of the clear things in this, that it's not just Trump and those around him, but it's about 
democracy and, and when you bring up things like Roe and it, it is about minority rule as well. Mm-hmm. The majority of, the, the, of Americans elected Joe Biden president. The majority of Americans support reproductive freedom. Um, it's no accident that those two things are about a minority party imposing its will on the greater populace. And so well, it's, I think it's that's also, a it's a minority faction of a minority party, right? Yeah, and the vast yeah. majority of Republicans don't support those things. So uh, we are really in this, this era of tyranny of the extreme minority. And yet that minority seems to have a grip on politicians who were elected by people who don't support those things. So in a moment, we're going to seg into this week's feature interview uh, with Krista Bilton, which is going to be a wonderfully rich and fascinating diversion from the hellscape of the news cycle, which I think is very important for our health, our mental health, which brings me to something I want to mention and discuss with you two before we uh, move on, which is uh, another one of our colleagues, Charlotte Klein, wrote a story that's up on The Hive, Vanity Fair's The Hive right now, the title of which is, Many Americans are fleeing the bad news cycle. Boy, we've talked about this for the last couple of years because uh, Emily Jane Fox and I are always trying to flee the news cycle and yet uh, failing to do so. But um, there's a quote in it, and I'll just, it's the key quote of the piece, and it's quoting uh, the publisher of Vox, the media company. And uh, the quote uh, uh, from Melissa Bell is I think we aren't building a service for our audiences. Now, she's talking about the media, I think, in general, and that includes us. We're not actually helping them navigate the world around them. What we're doing is we're telling them horrible, frightening news every single day and not providing any solutions. And I think all of us know this intuitively, right? Because we're all like doing doom scrolling all day. And that's sort of the, uh, it's a lifestyle choice, but it's also what we're doing. Um, and it's numbing us in some ways. And people are checking out because they're like, well, it's also summertime. Let's Let's remember that. But you know, I'm not asking you guys to solve this problem here on Inside the Hive, but it'd be great if you did. I am. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, please, Emily. I sort of feel like there is no solution. So that's why the media is not presenting anyone with a solution. So I agree that we are uh, presenting the problems. But if we had a solution, I sure as hell believe the media would present it. I've been feeling like we are beyond a solution. And that is my personal struggle right now that I feel like it's just done. Like this is this is who we are now and we can either choose to be part of it or not. And right. I have had many conversations in my house about where is there to even go? If I don't feel safe sending my child to school when she's of school age, uh, if I don't feel safe going to the grocery store, if I feel like my rights and my daughter's rights are going to be controlled by an extreme fringe minority and who knows whose rights are next. I just don't even know where to go. Like you're not going to Europe because they have their own problems. You're obviously not going to China or to Asia where rights are extreme. People have come to this country for many, many, many years because it is the freest place to live and your rights are protected and it's the land of opportunity. And I still believe those things are true. I believe it is better than most, if not many places, but it doesn't feel good to be here right now. So, and it, and it feels worse to know that if it doesn't feel good to be here right now and it's worse other places, then it can't feel good to, to be most places right now. And that's, that's really just so dispiriting. Yeah, I think, I think a systemic solution to the news problem specifically 
it's hard to get the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you in- introduce doom scrolling and, and the, just the presentation of, of things, it, it's hard to go back from that on a personal level. I've, which is basically the only level I feel like I control at this point. I've tried to be a lot slower in my news consumption. Uh, I'm probably one of the few under 65 year olds who gets a paper delivered to his door and, and runs down and grabs it. I, I find that that I'm, I'm still keeping my ball, my eye on the ball uh, in terms of the doom and gloom. But I think on a day to day basis, it's more easy to digest than it is on the minute to minute basis. And, and so I don't think there's a systemic way to, to enforce that anymore, but I think that on a personal level, trying to get out of that immediacy uh, feeling and, and feeling like you're constantly darting around, and it, it's a little bit refreshing to, to get a break. That feels like a, a great break. And the, the only other thing I'll add is that everyone should seek solace in things that give them a little bit of a mind vacation. And one of the things that has given me some solace is reading. I've really got back into fiction reading. I used to read a book a week and then Trump happened and I stopped being able to read fiction. And now I've been able to read for pleasure again because I have freed my mind from that. I quit Twitter. I don't engage in stuff that actively makes me feel worse about the state of the world. So I've been on a reading tear, and one of the things I've read and loved is Krista Bilton's new memoir. And it's not fiction. It is very much her life, but it feels like you're immersed in a great fiction tale. So we have a fantastic interview with Krista, and her husband, Nick Bilton, has joined us as well, a a high favorite. So it's a super, super fun interview, a fantastic book. So you two on this call with me on this on this podcast with me you should go read it and everyone else listening should read it too and and thank you so much eric for bringing your wisdom here as we continue down this hearing rabbit hole we would love you to come back and spend more time explaining all of this to us absolutely thank you There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. We are here with two of my favorite people. One of them has a book out this week. The other one is just the biggest member of our family. I'm here with Krista Bilton and her lesser half, Nick Bilton. Hi, guys. I'm so happy you're here. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Hi. Thanks for having us both on. Krista's book, Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings is out this week. It's easily my favorite thing I've read this year, not just because I know and love you, but because it is incredibly well-written, a phenomenal story, and just full of some of the most complex, rich characters, yourself included, that I've really read in a, in a memoir of my entire life. So I'm so happy you're here that I get to talk to you about it. Thank you so much, Emily. I'm just going to set the scene because your book starts off with a scene where the 35 siblings, not all of them, but a handful of the 35 siblings biological siblings that you had met 
are, were in your house for a weekend. And I came to your house that weekend. I remember this. I don't remember that. I remember that. this. Yeah. You and, yeah, you Wait, and Lee I don't, came. I truly don't remember that. It was my first time that I came to visit Lee in Los Angeles. We've been dating for, I think, two and a half weeks. And it was a crazy thing that I came to visit here. And you guys, because you set us up, invited us over for brunch. And I walked into your house and there were, I think, 12 women who looked exactly like you. Yeah. Well, what was funny is I don't think I told you guys when you were coming over and I was like, oh, come by for a coffee. And you guys walked in and I think Lee's face was like, wait, what? Did, did, did like, is Krista a gremlin and someone put border on her last night? Like what Truly. happened? It, it was, was a little twilight zone. Okay. Well, we'll back up to, so people can understand what we're talking about. But I walked in the house and there were many women who looked almost identical, obviously all beautiful, but my head sort of like exploded and I didn't know what was happening. So explain to people who didn't walk into your house and see uh, 12 identical strangers, why there are these strangers who look exactly like each other in your house for a weekend? Yeah. So I discovered in my mid twenties that the man I had known as my dad and that turned out to be a more complicated story than than I knew of. But it turned out that after I was born, he became one of the most prolific sperm donors at the California Cryobank. And that I had anywhere between several dozen and possibly over 100 biological siblings growing up all over the U.S. So you grew up in Los Angeles. Your mom was a single mother who wanted to become a mom. And one of the things that I found so amazing in your writing was just how much she wanted to be a mom and how she committed she was to that. And uh, as a new mom, I really could feel her wanting that. And I really connected with that so much. And she, uh, as a lesbian, wanted to find a donor. And she tried all sorts of ways. And she met your dad in a hair salon and convinced him to be a donor and asked specifically, which I found amazing, for him to not be a donor for other people. Yes. And <laughs> then he started donating in, in mass quantity uh, and, and was the biological father to uh, many, many siblings. I just found how you grew up and with the kind of family that you created before you even knew about your biological siblings to be... So fascinating. So before you found out about these siblings, can you just walk us through a little bit about your childhood and your mom and um, your sister who you did grow up with and the, and the other people who helped create this unconventional but, but warm, loving family? Yeah, absolutely. So my mom is, I think, one of the great, as you mentioned, one of the great characters in, in memoir. Um, I think that I think she's I think she's one of the great characters of the Western world is the way the way it was put in the book and I think kind of <laughs> sums it up. <laughs> yeah, Nick, Nick knows her well. He can attest to the fact that that is true. But um, but yeah, as you said, she she desperately wanted to have a kid. But as a, a lesbian in the early 1980s, that was a complex thing, and she she really carried a lot of, you know, she didn't know a single gay woman who had had a child at that point. So she was really setting out and making it up as she went along. So when she found my dad in that hair salon, she she paid him to have me, but then she felt guilty not giving me a father figure because um, she just didn't know anyone else who had done that. So she then paid him to, to you know, to be play a role in my life as well. So I, I think I think one of the things that's, that's interesting, just, just to kind of 
set this up for Krista a little bit is like you've got to imagine, you know, it's the 1980s, the cover of Time magazine. What is it again on the cover of Time magazine around the time that you're conceived? It's like the nuclear family is like it's two straight people and two two straight kids. And and, you know, being gay was was seen as like the the worst thing that someone could be. Well, there was. Yeah, there was the that was sort of the beginning of you know, Jerry Falwell, you know, being on TV, being anti-gay. It was like Reagan back to a conservative era coming off of the 70s when things were getting a little more progressive. So I think it was a hard time. And this was also 10 years before Ellen came out as gay. And remember, she lost her job and she wasn't even a mother. So, or she lost her show rather. So um, yeah, it was just, it's, I think we forget that we've come so far in that, in that area. At least in the way you you write about it though, it doesn't seem like it was something that was, at least presented to you as as shameful or different. I know that there, you talk about in the book, uh, you going to preschool and realizing that it was unusual or out of the ordinary for you to not have a mom and a dad who lived together. And I think that that is something that many kids ask themselves now because families do look different. Um, but I think it didn't, at least in the way you were writing it, 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 you sort of felt like this was your family and though it was unconventional. There was nothing that felt shameful about it, even though I'm sure there was so much societal pressure for it to feel shameful. And I thought that that was really kind of loving and, and wonderful. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think what kids, I took from it. No, I think in any environment a kid grows up and they, they just, it is what they know. It's, I think it's only once you hit adolescence and that you start to realize what what things make your family different. Um, sure. But yeah, but outside of the gay thing, my mom was also just a very, very colorful character. You know, she had struggled with various addictions and alcoholism throughout her life, which came back around as I was growing up. She had been, she had been involved in many pyramid schemes. She had, you know, she I, was just I, a wild character. Maybe Nick can... Uh, yeah, Nick is your mother-in-law. <laughs> she, it's the thing that's interesting about Deborah is I think it's harder for Krista to kind of say because she's lived with it. But for me, meeting her later on in life, and and she's like unlike any other person. She, I mean, the best, honestly, the best analogy in the most loving way I can say it to her is Forrest Gump, mm. because she says things that you're like, "There's no way that happened," and she'll be like, "Oh, you know, you'll like." For example, the documentary Wild Wild Country comes out, and I'm talking about it at the dinner table. And she goes, oh, I dated the Sheila. And you're like, no, you didn't date the <laughs> Sheila. And she goes, no, no, no. She And, and then she Let shows you a photo. Let me open my scrapbook. <laughs> yeah. And here's a picture of her with, uh, what's his name again, Chris? The, uh, it it um, wasn't Sheila. It was the second woman who came the second in. It was Hasia. Yeah. They were lovers throughout that whole thing. With the Hasia. And, but there's a picture of her, like, yeah, next to, uh, on the Rolls Royces. Yeah, with Bogwan. There's pictures of Krista as a little girl on the Rolls Royces. Oh, my gosh. And then she says things like, you know, uh, that you, you'll be like, oh, I've always wanted to go to India. And she would be like, oh, I was with the Beatles in India. And then, you know, and there's there's just story after story after story. And I think one of my favorite moments was when she told us this story about her and Warren Beatty having these, like, crazy parties together. And you're like, yeah, right. And then we ran, Chris and I ran into Warren Beatty at a party and he was like, oh my God, me and your mother. Like, and you just like, they're all true, but it's just so unbelievable when you, when you hear her tell them. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. It's really cool. The thing that I 
I loved so much about the book, but one of the things I just thought was such an interesting thing, you have such interesting characters, but the backdrop of LA in the 80s and 90s, it just was so, I mean, as people who all live here and I'm new here and I'm sort of still in the phase of like, what a crazy town this is. And so it just is sort of a love letter to that era of LA in that period too. And I just think it was so cool. The town is so small and everyone's interconnected. And I just thought that that was such a rich backdrop for really, really rich characters. I want to get through some of the, just the nuts and bolts of the story before I ask you some of the questions I had as a reader and and things that I think are a little stickier, but you knew your dad was your biological dad through the way in which your parents got pregnant, but you did not know that he had fathered other children. So walk me through how you found out. Uh, I know that a New York Times article is involved and I know um, some other things are involved. It's a, it's a complicated story. Also, Krista, you should also walk them through how your parents conceived you. Oh, yeah. With a turkey baster. <laughs> Lit some candles and I was conceived with a turkey baster. Well, originally... They tried, um, my mother would, would find out when she was ovulating and then she would go to wherever my father was at that moment. So, you know, he was a waiter at the Ivy at the time trying to become a musician slash actor. And so she'd be ovulating and she'd go have lunch at the Ivy and, and order, a, you know, bring her little cup and order a, an iced tea. And then he would come and serve her and take the cup and return with it filled after a trip to the bathroom and she'd run to the doctor's office. Oh my gosh. In one of those beautiful hand-painted bowls. (laughs) I don't think it was in one of those. Sorry for that visual. She has had these little plastic cups and she would stick them in her bra to keep it warm so she could then rush off to the... Honestly, your mom's commitment to be a mom is like the greatest story about becoming a mom I've ever heard. I know it's very unconventional. It's not the way we usually hear about moms wanting to be moms, but... She really wanted to have you, and that's such a cool thing. I'm so glad that that came across. Cause, and also, I, I will mention that I think that that's, of all the things I share with all these siblings that I met later on, I think that's something we all had in common, was that we each had a parent who desperately wanted us such that they were willing to go to such great lengths and such unusual lengths at that time to have us. What an affirming thing. Okay, so I interrupted you on your story of of how you found out. So yeah, so so I proceeded to have this this wild crazy ride of a life with my mother with, with and my father was in and out of the the picture ultimately. You know, he struggled a little bit with homelessness and some other stuff later on. So I deal with that in the book, but um but he called my mother on Valentine's Day in 2007 and said, "Deborah, happy Valentine's Day. Go get the New York Times." And she said, yeah. um why, Jeffrey? What, what are you talking about? She said, just go get the New York Times. And so she drove over to the, the local newsstand where she was living at the time. And, and there on the, on the front page of the Sunday Times was a photo of my father with his arm around a girl who looked just like me and my sister. And it, the headline was something like, sperm donor, father ends his anonymity. And it was a huge story at that time because... Um, it's, it's a long backstory of how we came to that moment in the times, and I get into that in the book, but, but that was the moment that my mother realized that he had broken his promise to her and that for almost a decade when I was growing up, he was donating sperm sometimes three times a week. Because there is no limit in the U.S. for how many times you can donate, right? I know that there are, there are limits in Great Britain and other countries, but in the U.S. you could do it an unlimited amount of times, right? That's right. And that was the case then, but it's also still the case now. It's completely unregulated. There's also no 
real checks and balances within the industry. So with Krista's dad, Jeffrey, who, he filled out the uh, he filled out the the paperwork, uh, the, you know, for the application process and the other parents will see in a kind of, you know, a, a, a way that flattering was very, very flattering and creative. So he said that he was a dancer, but he was really a Chippendales dancer and that he'd been on, you know, there were all these things. He was that, a model, but he was a Playgirl centerfold. Yeah. And yeah. and, and he, he, the thing about him, I think that's interesting is that he was. Oh, wait, here's a good one. That he had a, a, a BA in philosophy, but he had spent a semester studying transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. Which so, is those are things are close. They're yeah, creative. they're close. But but from a from a, a you know parent seeking seeking you know a donor like not and he was also unbelievably handsome. I mean, just you know had this I've look se- I've, to him. I've seen the Playgirl. Yeah, <laughs> not the whole Playgirl. Have you seen the whole Playgirl? Oh, because we had it with us. One of my siblings had found it on eBay and brought yes. it. That's going to be a collector's item. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. But Krista, get to the so so uh, so I'm but sorry. you didn't so, find so my so I didn't find out after that New York Times story. My mom had a a panic attack, and what proceeded was a sort of elongated mental breakdown where she she told herself she swore that she would never tell me and my sister this, even as my father started doing a ton of press around the story. So she, I didn't know what was. I thought maybe she had relapsed after getting sober from drug addiction because mm. she was just acting so crazy. But I couldn't make sense of it, and then finally. I forget exactly how long after she sat my sister and I down and she had to tell us because she had realized that the boy that I was dating was most likely my half-brother. Dun, dun, dun. I knew that from you and I knew it from the book, but just hearing you say it, it's just, these are the ramifications from having no regulations like that. And obviously there are serious consequences had that relationship continued and you would have a child together. And, and, uh, that's why this is the, the consequences to that are really crazy and really, really great. And, um, the fact that this is unregulated is, uh, is a wild thing. Chris, to tell what, what, what was that like? I mean, like that moment, if, you know, if I, I think, found out, should I save that for the book? I mean, it was pretty, um, <laughs> it's a juicy part of the book. It's, it's a, a juicy, juicy part, part of, the of the book. But I think you can do a little it's sprinkle. It's a little, you know, coming to grips with the idea that you may have slept with your brother is a really hard thing to deal with. Mm. And then staring at that person and not wanting to tell them what you think to figure it out with them, but then looking at their facial features and trying to determine if they look like yours or if they have the same toes or if, you know, it's just a little bit, it's surreal to say the least. But sure. um but yeah, that was so that was part of the story and then and then the book also tells the story of my evolving feelings about this larger biological family because at first it was it was really shocking but 10 years later that all changed and I and I hosted this event as you said. So But at first you you back then you didn't want anything to do with them, right? Yeah, I already had such a complex family unit, just my small one. You know, we'd had a lot of mom, second moms come in and out and a lot of up and down economic circumstances. And and so it was just a wild life already. This was just too wild of a, this was just too much for me to to deal with at that moment. How old were you when you found this out? I was in my early 20s. And Nick, at what point did you come into the picture? That's a good question. Should I age myself here? Yes. Um, I came into the picture 
nine years ago. Is that right, Chris? About yeah. nine years ago. Uh, so you were when you were 64. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Uh, did you just literally do this whole interview and, and, and bring me on just to crack that joke Nick at me? Nick is younger in spirit than I am, so. <laughs> uh, I was 20, 21 at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. No. Um, no, I think Chris, Chris <laughs> and I had met, but what was funny was I have my own crazy family. We're not going to get into that. We'll save that. I think for everybody has a crazy family. Everyone That's has a crazy why family. I wrote the no, book, mine's insane. But, but um, I remember this moment of me. I told a few people about mine. I remember this moment when Chris and I really started to kind of get to know each other. And I and she asked about my family. I'm like, oh, they're all like a little nuts. And she and I was like, what about yours? And she was like, I think hold you know that like hold my beer meme. It was essentially that. Um, mm-hmm. And when I heard about it, I, my mouth was just agape. No, what was really nice in meeting Nick is that he was so non-judgmental and also asked so many questions as a journalist that he was really the first time, he was the first person I had ever fully really opened up to about this crazy life. Because for a lot of my life, I had so much shame about not my mom being gay or, but just about our unconventional, my unconventional upbringing and, and, um, and having Nick ask me all these questions and get to know me and then still loving me after that. That's also a big part of the book is, is getting over shame and, um, and embracing where we come from. Cause everyone has stuff and every family has its chaos. And well, not only does every family have stuff and chaos, but I would presume that in the era of 23andMe and DNA tests, uh, every family will have this kind of stuff, right? And and yes, exactly. you and I know people who are not connected to you who have learned about, um, secrets in their families through those kinds of tests. And I think probably most people are starting to learn about it or see it in their hometown newspapers. Um, and I think that this will only continue to be the case going forward, certainly in the future, as families become more and more unconventional because of science and because of people accepting differences in a way that they had in the past. I, I just think that this kind of thing is is happening more and more. And so what you felt uh, 10 years ago is not going to be how people going forward feel about this, right? No, it's totally true. And I think that that has been, you know, I only I only put out the book a couple of days ago as we're recording this, but um but what's been so wonderful for me to hear is there have been people who have been sending me emails or messages on Instagram that, you know, I read your book in a day and I'm also the child of a donor mm-hmm. and this book helped me process what I'm going through at this moment and I just met 10 of my siblings and it's, you know, and, and that just feels so wonderful. And, um, and that's really, you know, I wrote, I wrote this book for, for especially for kids like that and, um, and other people who grew up in, in just, you know, wishing for a normal family, even though there's nothing, there's no such thing. <laughs> I, I think the, I think the thing that for me that, um, just to give Krista a little props here with this book and this, and her story, I think the thing to me that's so amazing is like, you know, we've all, there's all these memoirs that have come out. There's like, the glass castle about growing up with a you know a, a parent who's homeless. There's the uh, running with scissors about growing up with alcoholism. There's all these different things, and <clears throat> people who grew up with gay parents and the shame around it. People who grew up with multiracial families. You know, people who found out they had all these donor siblings. There's a million different things, and Krista's story encompasses all of it. Mm. And you know, and it's so, and I think what's so amazing about the book to me. Of watching her write it and 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 seeing the final product and everything is is that I think certain people would come away from a story like this 
and have resentments and insecurities and everything. And I think Krista really like worked through this in a way that she just has so much compassion for everyone. Like all the siblings, her, her mom, her dad, her sister, all these people. Uh, and I think that's what makes it such a beautiful book at the end of the day. It's got, it's got all the chaos and the comedy and the drama and lots and of comedy secrets. I'll add. It's not all heavy and dark. There's a lot of comedy. Very funny. But it's, but it, but I think it's also like, it's like the ending to me is like one of the most beautiful endings to a book I think I've ever read. And I think oh, that- thanks, uh, Nick. What's yeah. really exceptional, and Nick, you and I can speak to this because we know, and Krista too, uh, all three of us can speak to it. Uh, we know a lot of authors and we know a lot of writers. And so oftentimes when we're reading something, we know who wrote it. But I can say definitively that reading this, it also felt really true to who Krista is. It's not- you putting yeah. on airs, Krista, or you seeming like an evolved empath. I think you really are an evolved empath and, and who you are. I don't know really, about that. Let's not go that far. That's but. my my uh, <laughs> uh, assertion. Uh, but I think it really feels authentic to who you are. And that makes what's already a good book even better. You mentioned that when you talked to Nick about this the first time, he was asking you questions like a journalist. But what I was really struck by in reading this is you really seemed like a journalist. Uh, hmm. You told the story with such specificity. And it was amazing to me. And I, what, I kept writing, I wrote, I wrote and highlighted and had all these notes in my book. And I, the most common one was like, the reporting on this is spectacular. So I want to just mm. know a little bit about the process of how this was stuff that happened before you were born. Uh, how did you find everything out? Yeah, that was, well, you know, it's interesting. So I, I told my mother and father and others that I, you know, I interviewed people extensively. And in mm. fact, Interviewing people became a form of procrastination for me. Mm-hmm. As all writers will say. <laughs> I wrote, I read maybe 10 books on gay Los Angeles history and, you know, didn't use a single thing in any of uh-huh. those. But that was my way of just not writing anything sure. at that moment. But, yeah, I interviewed my family members extensively, especially, especially my mother. And she absolutely loved these interviews, knowing that I was doing it for a book but just not understanding what that meant. Mm. So I think that because I had struggled, I had I had tried to write this story over the years in different formats and it had never come to anything. And so I think that she just said to herself, I'm spending quality, amazing time with my daughter talking about me and <laughs> this project will never see the light of day. So I think at the point at which I handed her a manuscript, that's when the work between us really began because, mm. um, but my mom is an amazing, amazing character who, I you know, loved her everyone is complex and it, it, I don't think she would be so interesting without her flaws as well as her incredible traits. And, but she's, you know, she, it, we, we worked through a lot of stuff, you know, the things that she was upset about too were just, it was oh, not yeah, what it was, you would expect. It was amazing. You know, that I documented the, the harder times when she was a drug addict, this didn't bother her at all, but it just blew her mind that I'd called her dog Pudgy. And How dare you. we had to have therapy sessions over the use of this one word, Pudgy, for you her dog. You were wrong. That's why. That was a terrible <laughs> thing to say. How dare you? No, but she, she it was funny. She, she, I mean, there she, are just so many things that she could have been upset about. And for this she, yeah, to be she, the one that we needed. That stung. She must have brought up the her dog. Her dog's adorable. Her dog's name's Gracie, and she must have brought Gracie's up Gracie. Gracie's adorable, but, but there's it was, just it, it's hard to describe. But you're not going to call this dog like a lean, tiny, 
You have to be body positive with all dogs, Krista, in, in 2022, okay? And you can't go large Wait, Chris, because it's a Krista, tiny animal. I get you it. Got I this, think she's got these tiny little legs and this very large body. Pudgy fits. Krista, you should um, just go back to the moment uh, um, when you... Like, I think the part about, for me, at least seeing this firsthand, when you met Jennifer and what drew you back into actually meeting the siblings, um, I think that's a that's a really kind of wild moment. Do you think I should give that away? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think you could just talk a little bit about it because I think it's such a because it brings it comes back to this moment that Emily was talking about when she first met them. Yeah. The nature-nurture piece, which is a big part of this. Well, I'm desperate to ask you about that, yes. Um, yeah, so I wanted nothing to do with the siblings for almost 10 years. And upon first discovering their existence, there weren't that many of them at that time, but they were meeting on Facebook, and one of them sent me a Facebook message. And this sent me into a, a giant panic attack, and I just said, you know, thank you so much for reaching out, but biology doesn't make someone family, and I'm I've already got a complex family. I don't think I can handle being part of this for now, but thank you. So in the time between then and then more recently, there have been a lot more siblings and a lot more had joined that Facebook group. But because of that strong message that I had sent at that time, they'd all gotten the, you know, the word that, oh, just don't reach out to Krista because she doesn't want to be part of this. So, so no one had reached out to me in the, in the, you know, the decades since. And then my mother my mother thought that we had Jewish roots that she didn't know about, and she was determined to discover if this was true. So she came over with a DNA test and had me spit into the tube to send it off to Ancestry.com, mm. not realizing that this would connect me with a vast social network of DNA, which is hilarious because she really didn't want me to have contact with these siblings either. And I was breastfeeding our first kid and I was delirious and not, you know, sleep deprived. So I didn't even really know what I was signing up for myself. I just spit into the tube and then she took it to the mail and I didn't, you know, and so a few weeks later she discovered, no, sadly, we are not Jewish, which was very disappointing (laughs) to her. No, you no (laughs) 0.02%, I think she said or something like that. That counts. Yeah. She was, she was very depressed because she's, you know, loves that Nick is Jewish. She, she wants us to be more religious with our children, what have you. But um, but upon doing, so a few weeks after I was signed up for Ancestry, this beautiful woman named, you know, this, this lovely, kind woman named Jennifer across the country, a few years younger than me in upstate New York, who was raised by two heterosexual, you know, parents and in a traditional family, decided she wanted to take a DNA test just to see if she had any, you know, she tanned easily. And she was like, what's that about? I'm curious mm. to see our heritage. And she realized, and and we the weird thing about when you sign up for Ancestry or 23andMe is that when you are a half-sibling with someone, it does not make that clear. Mm. So it says you're somewhere between a half-sibling and a first cousin. Mm. So she was like, oh my gosh, I have all these first cousins. This is so wild. And she's like, and she immediately thought of a, an uncle of hers. And so she sends me a note and said, I hate to break this to you, but I don't think your dad is your dad. And I think it might be my Uncle Bob. And my mom immediately forwards me this email. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, oh my God, mom, what did you do? You signed me up for this account. I'm now going to be reconnected with all these siblings. Oh my gosh. Um, and then, so I, you know, I immediately log off and, and put my own email in. And then I get proceed to get all these emails from 
this woman, Jennifer, who at that point had come to realize it was, you know, her father mm-hmm. that she had wrong. And then also had the wildest realization, which is that after college, I had gone to this tiny little art school in Italy to study classical painting in a school that no one has ever heard of. It's it's like 30 kids they take a year, mostly in Europe. And Jennifer had gone to the same tiny school as me. And, and we had all the same friends and we had worked from the same studio. And as you know, that's like a really obscure interest. But it wasn't it wasn't just that. You know, when you looked at their their Instagram. Yeah, Nick was had- Nick walked in after I got this email and I just was well, no, what so, was funny I was, was mute. I was trying to process this. I, I would walk in at this point, at this time, I think it was like more and more people were signing up for 23andMe and doing these tests and things. And it's still a tiny percentage, by the way, of society that has ever done it. But I would like, sometimes I would come home from work and, and I'd this be like, This was after hey, Jennifer. No, before. I'd be, and I would come home from work and I'd be like, what's going on? She'd be like, oh, I have a new sibling. And I'd be like, oh. You know, after a while, you're just like, oh, she's got a new sibling. Like, But this one, I came in and she was like, I have a new sibling. And I was like, oh, and she goes, no, this one's different. And Mm -hmm. I looked at her Instagram and I was like, wait, does Krista, I mean, my brain didn't work probably. And I was like, does Krista have another Instagram that I didn't know about? Because the poetry books on the bookshelves, the gardening books, the the style of painting, the style of clothes, I mean, us in the same studio in in Florence, Italy. Standing in the same room in Florence, Italy. Also, don't, don't, I remember this from that, that day. This is, this is how much it stuck with me. This is more than three years ago. Uh, don't some of them have the same names? There are a lot they, of Kates, but I don't know. Aren't there a lot of Kates I, I just think in the remember world? You guys, not only were there, were there so many physical similarities, but there were just so many similarities to the things you were interested in. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes me think differently about uh, the role of, of nature and nurture here. How did it change the way you thought about this? It changed it a lot because I grew up thinking everything was nurture. And I don't know if that was every one of our generation. Um, yeah that it was more focused on that. But but this definitely tilted the scales so that I give a lot more credit to nature. And I think there's actually a lot of power in acknowledging the role that nature plays because if you struggle with certain things and you realize that you know there's a biological component, then you, then you go about healing those things in different ways and you stop blaming yourself for them. Um, for example, anxiety and depression runs mm-hmm. really high in, in my family. And rather than, you know, being so, I don't know, or alcoholism runs really high on my mother's side. So I'm sober just as a, you know, as a preventative measure. Um, totally. I, I wonder, like, as I was reading this, I just kept thinking about my daughter. And I know mm. you have two perfect sons. And thinking about <laughs> how... Nick, they are perfect. They are, they're honestly, beautiful. They're, they're boys, though. Boys are lunatics. Come on. Yeah, boys realistic. are crazy. Um, spirited. That's the word we're supposed that's to use. That's the word it. we're supposed spirited to use. Spirited is exactly right. Beautiful and spirited. <laughs> um, but I, it just makes me think that so much of the fretting that you do as a new mom or even not as a new mom about making sure your child is exposed to this and to that and all that I'm sure is great, but really they are who they are. And this book really 100%. confirmed this to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I, I think that there's the, there, was this, there was this moment that weekend when you, you came, Emily, where all these siblings were over. There was, I think, 15 or so total at, at, at the peak of it. And we were all in the back end of the house. And I was like, and people were like, oh, do you have this? Do you have that? And I was like, let's do a little game like where, where you raise your hand if this is something that applies to you. And I would say things like that I knew 
Krista did that were things that I didn't did. You do, do or musical other theater in high school. Every hand yeah, went up. Every hand goes up. Did you up. do organized sports in high school? One hand went up. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a cat? Every yeah, hand every went hand up. Do you have more wow. than one cat? Most hands went up. There was this moment where uh, we all went out for dinner uh, to this restaurant, and the waiter, of course, couldn't believe his eyes when he was seeing what was, was going on. It was a stunning sight. Yeah, and we, we were at dinner, and Krista has this tendency to lose her phone seven or eight times a day, her keys 12 times a day, and any other thing that has to be held in a hand. I mean, she takes yes, her kids Nick to school. Yes, Nick loves this trait of mine. It really, she, she takes her kids really to school, fun. and every single time forgets their backpack and has to come back and get it, and uh, which is adorable, and I love <laughs> it's it. It's called ADD. That's what, it, but, that's what it's but titled. But we were at this <laughs> restaurant, and I'd always, it didn't, I didn't get it. I was like, what, what, just grab your keys. And we were at this restaurant and we all left and the waiter comes out almost like a Monty Python skit, like holding like 30 purses and five oh my God. bags and 12 sets of keys. And she's like, I think you guys forgot your stuff. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it, 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 but it was what was wild, though, was just insanely wild was to see all of these similarities that affected 90 percent of them. And then things that you would bring up that that had nothing to do with their family, that none of them raised their hands. I really like, uh, and I remember your laughs are very similar. And mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's I'm just, purposely trying not to give you all a sampling of that laugh. <laughs> no, I love that laugh. I, w- I would say it's it's um, so original, but actually it's not because there are many other people that's true. we know who have this. But I think that uh, this book, I encourage everyone who's listening to this to get it because it's beautiful writing. It's an incredible story, but it really makes you think so much about um, how you were raised and what you were doing to raise your children. And uh, it just it just really makes me as a mom think so differently. And I just, I absolutely devoured every minute of it. And I'm so happy that this came out exactly how I knew it would come out. I knew you were going to do a brilliant job with it. And you absolutely did. And I just, I hope everyone takes the time to read it this summer. I concur. I have, a, I have one last, can I ask a last question? Do it. Uh, oh, Krista, God. the title of your book is Normal Family and of course, your family is anything but normal. But do you think there is such a thing as a normal family? Mm. Oh, um, I truly don't think that there's anything, any such thing as a normal family. And if there was, it would probably be pretty boring. So, well, I think that I think it's normal now, and I think it will be even more so going forward for the norm to be more like Krista's family and like your family, Nick, than. Mm. The, I had I had what I think was quote unquote a normal upbringing. I have a mom and a dad who are still together. They've been together since they were 15 and 17. They're not related sibling. to each other. They're not that I know of, <laughs> um, not that they know of. And so I think that that will be the minority. And yeah. I think that these unconventional, different looking families will probably grow up, grow to be the norm. And uh, I think Krista, what you did and and how you told the story with such empathy and with such such love helps normalize other people feeling comfortable talking about the fact that their families yeah. maybe don't look like that uh, mm. that cookie cutter image of a family. So I'm so grateful for you writing it and for coming by here and talking to us. Your oh my family gosh! Thank here. you so much for having me. Thank you and thanks Nick for for coming and joining. Of course, it was fun to be a cheerleader on the sidelines here. I love watching husband Nick do this kind of interview. Oh, it's so cute. It's very cute. I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. Well, come back next time you write a book about your family or before I then. I will. It might be a minute. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, well, thank you again, guys. All right. Thanks, All so right. Much. Great chatting. And if you are watching this video, 
either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.